This morning's sermon is going to come from Luke chapter 5. We've been in the Gospel of Luke. And last week we looked at the paralytic, the healing of the paralytic. And in that same story, there's uh, an introduction of characters that's important for us to look at this morning. So we're going to look again at verses 17 through 26 at some different verses and perspectives on this particular case. And before we do that, let's seek God's blessing. Father, you are in heaven, and you are awesome, and you're good. And we come to you in your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we ask that you would bless us. Look upon us and humble us. Break us. That we would walk before you in all humility, trusting you for all things. For we ask this in Christ. Amen. So the story goes like this. In chapter 5, verse 17, on those days, as he was teaching, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were there. Now, this is a little introductory note to our friends, the scribes and the Pharisees. I shouldn't really call them our friends, but they certainly weren't Jesus' friend, and they shouldn't be our friend either, but I think we'll find out we're more like them at times than we'd care to admit. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there, and they had come, as you see here, they had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So basically, they're coming from all around. And why do you think this is happening? Well, they've heard a report. They've gotten the report that there is somebody... This man called Jesus of Nazareth, who is doing some pretty amazing stuff and creating, as you could imagine, quite the buzz in all of Judea. And then Jesus, as we know, the story goes on, he heals this paralyzed man. And then as soon as they lower this man down into the room through the roof, in verse 20, it says, And Jesus saw their faith, and he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And now verse 21, a problem arises. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? but that you may know that the Son of God has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things. This text here this morning introduces for the first time this group of people called the scribes and the Pharisees. And this is important for us here this morning. Because I want us to look in a mirror this morning and to be really honest with ourselves. Because we have to understand, scribes and Pharisees, it's nice, isn't it? We always like to put them off over here, these people way out there. Whoever whoever would want to be associated with a scribe and Pharisee? 
Do you know anybody who would volunteer and say, yeah, those are the people I want to be identified with? Not many. Yet all of us need to realize that the scribes and the Pharisees were religious people. They were God's people. They were in the covenant. They were children of Abraham. They had the law. They, they, they had so many of the trappings, so many of the things that would identify, even, within the, even if the, within the world of Judaism, you know what they were thought of? As the elite. According to the Bible Heritage Foundation, the word scribe is the English translation of the Greek word grammatius, or grammatius, however you say it, which means student of the scriptures. Scribes were men who primarily... Their occupation was writing out the Jewish scriptures and teaching the people what the law said. Because they copied the Old Testament, they were familiar with Hebrew, the Hebrew scriptures and were respected in society for their literacy and their knowledge. The scribes provided teaching that was the religious and moral backbone of the Jewish people. Because of their role they are also addressed as teacher, or in Hebrew, I'm sorry, in, the, in Greek was rabbi. And they were trusted. They were trusted as professional interpreters and as ones who could judge individual cases as they were related to Jewish law. Scribes were therefore also trusted as lawyers within Jewish society. As the scribes were the most learned individuals on the fine details of following Jewish law. And their duties also consisted of deciding specific questions of the law in individual cases. So if you had, you're wondering about the law, what does the law say in regard to divorce? They would go to a scribe, and the scribe would tell them what the law said. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were a religious sect within Judaism, full of influential leaders. They were religious fundamentalists who focused on strict observance of certain Jewish laws, ceremonies, and traditions, and especially the traditions of the elders. Pharisees were also leaders in the local synagogue. And in the time of Jesus, there were around 6,000 of them, a very large, influential group. So the scribes, if you notice, there's a difference. There's the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, many of the scribes were also Pharisees, but not all the Pharisees were scribes. Scribes were like your paid professionals, your scholars, your, your doctors who, who studied the scriptures full time. That was their job. Pharisees come from every sector of society and performed, um, gathered together as a religious sect within Judaism that was, had strict adherence to particular laws, ceremonies, and the traditions of the elders. That's who these people were. That's kind of their background of what this group was like. But here in our text, we'll see that both the scribes and the Pharisees were scrupulous, authority, authoritarian, I should probably say is a better word, scrupulous, authoritarian, authoritarian judges. That's what we see in verse 17. When we first look at this, do you know why they show up and they come from everywhere? Because the scribes and the Pharisees heard about this Jewish miracle worker. And of course, if someone's working miracles, and people, what, do you, what do you think people are saying about him? That, hey, hello guys, we found out that Messiah is here. That's probably the buzz in, in the air. Everybody's probably speaking of who is this guy? Some great prophet at the very least, and perhaps he's Messiah. So, scribes and Pharisees, they show up, notepad in hand. 
And they're going to analyze the situation and give their opinion, right? They're going to give to the people the analysis of this so-called leader because, after all, whose analysis really matters? In that society, what do they really care about? They care about what the Jews, I'm sorry, what the scribes and the Pharisees say. That's the scribes and the Pharisees are self-proclaimed authorities. They understand that they're the ones that the people would look to, and because they know that people look to them, they want to give their opinion of this. There's no one else better in the law than they are who could judge this person based on the law. And there's no one else stricter in religion who could, than the Pharisees who could judge this Jesus based on their Pharisaical standards. These guys, you have to understand, were the elite of the elite. If anybody's going to give an opinion, if anybody's going to blog on the Internet, it's these guys. And if anybody's going to be reading them, you're going to be reading these guys. Because what, what they think is the most important. And as a result, they become the scrupulous, authoritative judges of everyone and everything. After all, that's their place and position. You can even see that, you know, there, there they are watching. There they are observing. And, and, and they, they, they all of a sudden, in verse 21, you can see in verse 21 how they, uh, the scribes and the, the Pharisees began to question, saying. Now, it gives the impression, doesn't it? You read that. They began to question, saying, that they are, they're saying to one another, who is this man? Who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So, but the thing is, they're not saying that out loud. How do we know that? Look at verse 22. When Jesus perceived what? What they said? No, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question where, he says? Why do you question in your hearts? This, this, this is easily missed as well. Jesus just does something right there that should have all by itself caused them to, like, go, whoa. Think of that. When is the last time someone stood up and perceived your thoughts? I know what you're asking. I know what you're thinking. And, right, and nails them to the wall. But these people freak out. They freak out that Jesus has just said what he said and done what he'd done because they know better. And you realize this judgmental, authoritative spirit that the Pharisees have comes from a sense of elitism, comes from a sense of gaining knowledge and gaining wisdom. And it's very easy for you or I to become like a a scribe or a Pharisee. Because really, there's a spirit in all of us. That there's a little bit of scribe and Pharisee in all of us. That we we, we feel and we sense and we know at times. Just study your Bible for a while. Has this ever happened to you? You start studying your Bible, you study it, you study it, and you begin to see and know and you know more about certain topics within the Christian faith than most Christians around you. You talk to people, and it seems like, wow, they don't really even know their Bibles very well. And as you gain knowledge and as you gain wisdom, you maybe read books and you gain more knowledge and wisdom, and next thing you know, you start to really feel a sense of elitism. Because the more you talk to people and the more you get around Christians, you start to see, geez, these people are kind of dumb. They should maybe read their Bibles. Uh, They don't even know the basics. Uh, 
They, 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 don't, they don't even understand the finer points of justification. How dare they? Hmm. This is easy. This easily happens. And here's the thing. When we get partial knowledge even sometimes, knowledge will have a tendency to do one of two things. It will either have a tendency to humble us because we're aware of our ignorance, our weakness, or exposes us in some way, or it exalts us because it immediately gives you an advantage. And do you know what, you, what happens to any one of us here who have an advantage over other people? When we believe we, we're here and it's someone else is here for any length of time, for a moment, do you know what happens? We become proud. We become to have, have a feeling or a sense of authority, a sense of, what, you know, you should perhaps listen to me. Because I've discovered something that I think could really help you. This is the scary thing about learning and about knowledge, is that it can really turn us into these scrupulous, authoritative judges. The the other thing that can happen with us is that we actually, we start to think and believe that we have positions or we have authority that we don't really have. So we get involved in things that we don't, it doesn't really have to do with us. It doesn't belong to us. I'm going to give a very prominent and specific example going on right now on Facebook. There's a whole lot of buzz and a whole lot of comments and a whole lot of stuff going on in the Christian world around Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill. And I don't know if you've been on Facebook, you'll see it all over the place. Hundreds of Christians. Here's the, here's the problem with this. Not that what necessarily what the specifics of what people are saying, but who's saying it and where they're saying it. Because this is how we become scrupulous judges of things. We get information, and all of a sudden, if we think we know based on the information we have, we become a judge, and we're going to make a judgment. And the crazy thing about Facebook is this allows everybody to be a judge before a the watching world. And so the, here's, the, here's the thing we have to understand. When it comes to hearing, getting information, especially through, through means like Facebook, we've got to understand a couple things. One, first of all, does this have anything to do with me personally? And what I mean by that, am I responsible and do I have authority? If I'm responsible and I have authority, well, then I have, I have a responsibility to act toward it. First question. And if not, it's what you call none of my business. Second of all, do I have the time, even if I have the responsibility authority, now you have to take the time to listen carefully to the whole scenario, both sides of it. Both sides. And then bring a judgment based on all that you hear from both sides. Thirdly, you need to make sure that you never do any of that on Facebook. Here's why. Facebook is, is it's not a church localized group of people who communicate in-house. This is the watching, this is the world. Some people write on Facebook as if it's like their diary. But you, do you understand how many people all around the world have access to this and see this? 
And so we bring the Christian community, often we become these judges, these scrupulous judges of things we have no business getting into, and it gets, we get caught up in it because we have such easy access to it, and we get all this knowledge. It's not complete or full knowledge, but we get enough that we think we have enough knowledge to become a judge, and a scrupulous judge at that. Well, you don't. You don't have enough knowledge to become a judge. And if you, if you, if you were the judge, you're the one who had the authority or the responsibility, you really need to hear both sides. And thirdly, you should never let bring this before unbelievers. Just like Paul was saying to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says he can't believe what they would take, that they would take their disputes before unbelievers. He says, this, he, says, he says, I say this to your shame. He says, you should rather be wronged or defrauded rather than do that. You shouldn't bring this before unbelievers. Now, I'm not saying that people in, this, in situations like this, when we get knowledge of something, and this is how it works, and all of a sudden, we, we, we easily, today especially, with individualistic age where everybody's a judge, we run in and cast our judgments. And we become these scrupulous judge, judges about things. The problem is, it really, if we are not careful, these issues can turn us into Pharisees real easily. We get caught up in things that have nothing to do with our business, with making judgments in situations where we have not heard the full case. And so often, if you ever stood back and looked, I would hate, I would absolutely hate the majority of Christians to ever be a judge in this world. If you make a judgment that fast, with that little of knowledge, having heard that just, the, just that person's account. If you take that person's account as the absolute truth, that terrifies me. And if you get caught up in that, all of a sudden you can find yourself, uh, some people's faith gets shipwrecked as a part of it. Some people's faith gets badly damaged as a result of it. Some people are so distracted from the main thing, they're often these the tangents that literally deeply affects their faith. And so I want to say to all of us, to any of us, we live in an age in a world where it's very tempting to become a scrupulous judge of what people are saying and doing and, and voice our opinions because you could start a blog today, you could be on Facebook putting your opinions out there. In a lot of cases, you start getting caught up in this when it's none of your business. And literally can do damage to our faith. And you can watch people become Pharisees as a result of it. In saying that also, we have to understand something else. The scribes and the Pharisees weren't just scrupulous judges. They were for a reason. And it's because they were filled with biblical pride. If we do look at the verses 22 through 24... When they were questioning and reasoning in their hearts, like those who know better, why do you question your hearts, Jesus says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, you arise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, rise up your bed, rise, uh, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Now, these, in this particular situation, you've got the scribes and the Pharisees. that They're obviously okay with certain categories. They don't, they don't have a terrible problem with somebody healing someone. 
You can see throughout the Gospels that they really don't, they really don't have that big a deal with it. They have a, sure, this guy's healing people and he's doing this. Okay, everything's fine, right? Everything's good. And then when he says back up in verse 20, he saw the man's faith and he says, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees fall off their chairs, are, are kind of like, they didn't literally, but you can guarantee in their hearts, they're going, <gasps> did you hear what that guy said? Did, did you hear what he said? That's blasphemous. Only God can forgive sins. But Jesus had to teach them something. Jesus had them, wanted them to figure something out here. Now listen to this, Jesus is saying. Listen to this, because if you look at what Jesus asked them, why do you question in your hearts which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? He's asking this, think of this, which is, e- which is easier to do? You say, is it easier? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven you. That's pretty easy. But think of this. To tell a paralyzed person for life to rise and walk and that person's everything healed, that one's more difficult. But so Jesus says, okay, and so in order for you to, like, here, let me pose this question. Do you think that it's blasphemous for me to forgive sins because only God can do that? And they're right. But they don't understand who's talking here. But then you see me perform these miracles at my very word... I heal this guy. Guess, look at what's also fascinating about this is Jesus doesn't do it in anyone else's name. He doesn't say, in the name of Yahweh, I command you. He doesn't do it as, as somebody in the name of a prophet or anything like that. Jesus does it by saying it. Rise and walk. Boom, the guy rises and walks. And Jesus is trying to help the Pharisees see something. Understand something. If I have the ability and I can say to somebody, rise and walk, and you're okay with that? That part's okay. But for me to say, I forgive your sins, you're not okay with that. And so Jesus points out their faulty connections. Do you understand what I just did, basically, is what he's saying. Do you get it? I just say to the guy, rise and walk. And he walks. He rises up. Now, if you're okay with that, and you're not okay with me and saying your sins are forgiven you, then you have a problem computing the basic fundamentals of who God is. Jesus just did something that you couldn't do unless you were God. But these guys, guess what? They're taught. They have an education. They read their Bibles. They know their Bibles. If anyone understands it, who is it? It's these guys. But in their biblical pride, God causes them to be blind. They can't see for looking. And here's the thing what biblical pride does. All you have to do is gain some knowledge and gain some wisdom and gain some understanding in the scriptures and become proud. And God does not delight to reveal things to you. So you can gain a lot of knowledge, but you tend not to gain the right kind of knowledge. And then all of a sudden you become blind to the things that God is doing, the simple things. 
And this is, this is what biblical, biblical arrogance blinds our eyes. So even though we see, we can't see. Even though we hear, we can't hear. We miss what God is actually doing. If they were humble before the Lord, they would have seen immediately, they would have seen immediately that this, is, this man is actually God in the flesh, and it would have affected them. They would have said, whoa. Not just the forgiveness of sins. They would have fully understood it, because who else could do that but God? And here's why it's scary. Here's why it's scary for us to become like these people. Because these people, these scribes and Pharisees, they, you got to understand this, they were students of the Bible. In fact, could you find better students of the Bible than these guys? No. They were the people of God. And by all appearance, they were the favorite of God. Yet they were cut off from seeing because of their ignorance. And the same is true of many Christians who are students of the Bible today. They're so so full of themselves and they're learning that they think the world should stop and learn from their wisdom. And why, As as I said earlier, instead of becoming humbled by their learning, they become arrogant. They, they have learned over time to master subjects and doctrines and not to be mastered by their Lord. They have studied, not so that they might not go know God better, his ways better, and trust him more, but in order to refute arguments. They did this in order to get praise from men, to set people straight and earn degrees and respect. And that's why biblical pride is a scary thing. Because the more, the, the, more, the more you know and the less you apply, the more blind you become. And when that happens, the church loses power. People of God lose, it's like God's presence. It becomes academic and lifeless. We become more concerned about our pet doctrines than we do about the kingdom of God. Our distinctives, our confessions, our formulations, and our petty agendas are more important than the kingdom of God and the exaltation of Jesus. And you realize something? I have never seen so many arrogant men absent of power as I've seen in the Reformed faith. It's scary. And you know why? Over time, here's the slippery slope. They don't seek to know God and his ways better. They, they seek to live, and, and sorry, they don't seek to live and extend God's kingdom. They seek to know doctrine and theology better in order to fight this, for the so-called truth. Their passion is formulations and words, not God. Their love is debate, not people. Their joy is victory, not service. Their mission is defeat and not the extension of God. And you know what? I don't stand here today as somebody who looks down my nose at them because I have a confession to make. I was one of them. And it's easy to happen. 
I look back on my life and I look at the, there's, and it, this is what ends up happening. You gain more and more knowledge and more and more you want to teach people and explain to people. And you become very passionate about doctrines and you find you're less passionate about Jesus and his kingdom. And that happens. I have seen so many reformed people get studying and studying and studying and they lose the point of the studying. You know, the sweetest thing to God, the most delightful thing to him, is broken humility. There's just nothing more he delights in more. Nothing he hates more than arrogant pride. And you know what is, is quadruply worse? Arrogant pride based on your knowledge of the Bible. I think this is one of the scariest things to read about. If we're honest, Pharisees and scribes and understanding who they are and understanding what they did, and then we look in the mirror and we understand, do you know how easy it is for me to become like that? I've got to be careful. It's especially easy for me or a guy in a position like me. You know why? I study a lot. And I study the Bible a lot. I'm closer to any of these guys than you are. Because what I tend to do is I tend to get in here and study and learn. And if I'm not careful to check my own heart and be humble before God, I become like them gradually more and more over time. That's what I become. I just thank God that he spanks me. That he strips me. That he humbles me. Because otherwise, this is what we become. Biblical pride We become scrupulous and authoritative judges of everything. And we lose the point. We're no longer about the kingdom of God and God's glory and the expansion of his kingdom. And for for us to grow up in the wisdom and knowledge of him, but rather we're just, we're all about our pet doctrines, our distinctives, our particulars that separate us from everybody else. And here's, here's what eventually happens. Down the pharisaical road we go, and we get to the point where we start to deny the work, the very work of God. You know, in verse 20, as this ends here, it says, it concludes in verse 26 about how the people responded. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Well, I'll guarantee you, even the scribes and Pharisees, they were filled with awe, but they were not praising God. They were filled with awe, and they were ticked off. And how do, I, how do we know this? Well, the, the text doesn't say it here, but we have to understand that the people fail, uh, filled with amazement was everyone, but the people glorifying God was not everyone. And we can be sure of that. If we are looking at Matthew chapter 12, verses 20 through 24, it says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute and was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But, here's the big but, but when the Pharisees heard it, they didn't say, Can this be the son of David at all? They said, It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So we get insight as to what they think about what Jesus is doing. And so here they deny the work of God. They see it with their eyes and they deny it. 
They say it's of the devil. So they call what is good evil. And Jesus later, in that particular text, accuses them of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So these Pharisees, they become blind to the very simple work of God. And Jesus shows it to them in front of their face. face. You should see and understand this. He says to the man, rise and walk. And they see and don't understand it. They see and they deny it. That's a scary place to be. Of course, none of us ever want to be a Pharisee. None of us ever want to do something like that. None of us. Have you, I'm sure it's a fear of all of ours to say, man, I would never want to be a, uh, a Pharisee. In fact, I, man, I am careful that I never say anything I shouldn't say, because, especially in regard to the work of God, because I, I don't want to be accused of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I don't want to deny the work of God. But you know what? I think our... Part of our problem today isn't so much in some categories, in some aspects. It isn't so much um, our problem to deny the work of God. It's sometimes our problem to actually be unwilling to call something of the devil of the devil. To be actually unwilling to call something satanic because it's done by a Christian group. And why are we afraid of doing that? Who, who in the right mind would ever want to be guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, right? I know that in, in the cultures I grew up, nobody would really say anything about any of these religious quacks out there doing crazy things. And, and why wouldn't we say anything? Well, we're all terrified. Who wants to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? <laughs> I don't. I'm not going to do that. So we don't say anything. But the, we do need to be able to discern, and we do need, be, need to be able to speak the truth. Because there are quacks out there. There are people who are deceivers in the name of God. And in the name of God, they do cr- crazy things. And sometimes leaders can't be afraid to say something out of fear that they'd be like a Pharisee. Understand something. If you're afraid of committing this sin, you're nothing like the Pharisees. They weren't afraid of saying it, and they said it. It's not something that they were concerned about. In the, it wasn't even on the radar. And it wasn't something that they accidentally fell into. These Pharisees were arrogant men. Despite the evidence and facts before the, uh, their eyes, they called good evil. Calling evil evil is not a problem. But calling evil good evil is a problem. Jesus himself called things demonic. Jesus called, Jesus called Peter Satan. Can you imagine? Just finished telling him, blessed are you, Peter, among men. For God has revealed this to you because he called him the Christ. And then, <laughs> two moments later, he's calling him Satan. Whoa, what's going on? We have Jesus calls the Pharisees, he calls them demonic, of their father, the devil. Peter asks Ananias in Acts chapter 5, when Ananias brought a portion of his money, um, claiming for it to be the whole for the poor in the church. Here's Ananias, a baptized Christian, doing the, you know, sneakily doing the, uh, being misleading, and he says, how has Satan so filled your heart? 
The apostle said of Simon, who was converted, baptized, and discipled under Philip, that he was filled with the devil because he, he attempted to purchase the Holy Spirit so that he could have power like the apostles. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul says that some have turned away to follow Satan. It wasn't uncommon for Jesus or his disciples to actually call things what they were, to say that things were of Satan, to say that someone was, something was demonic or satanic. And so Jesus isn't saying, you know, here at all that somehow it's, it's bad. In, Matthew, in the Matthew passage, it's bad to call something evil that is indeed evil. But when you see good and you see what is right and you see what is true and you see what is of God before your very eyes and you call that evil, that is what he's, ref- what he's referring to. And this is, that's the thing. We have to be able to discern. When we see lies, deceit, greed, or something false, it's of the devil. And that particularly, they weren't afraid to say so. And again, how do we tell? Well, it's in the, the evidence of the thing. If something is of the Spirit, it'll be good, true, pure, right, glorifying to God. On the other hand, when something is not of God, it'll be filled with deceit, confusion, lies, greed, and manipulation. You'll see it. And sometimes... Things aren't that easy to see. And sometimes we, have, we, we don't say anything or we don't believe anything about it. And this is where we have to be cautious, always. Because not only do we have to be able to discern and at times call a spade a spade, we don't call it a diamond, we just call it what it is. There are plenty of times when we don't say anything. And it's like what I alluded to earlier. So even though on the one hand, we need to be able to judge and understand what is right, what is wrong, what is of God, what is of the devil, and if we can't discern that, we can't make our way through the world, can we? But just discerning it and understanding it and be able to look at it and and, and look at the evidence and understand where it is placed does not all of a sudden put authority upon us. Now here's a fundamental difference. You as a Christian, as an individual, need to be able to see and understand truth and discern it. What is of the devil? What is of God? What is good? What is evil? And you have to be able to do that. And then in terms of your responsibility, all those who are under your care, you need to guide and direct them as to what is good and to what is evil, to what is truth and what is, what is not truth. And for most of us, it simply means our families and the people under us, under our care, that we guide and direct. So we don't gain our understanding and a knowledge and a wisdom of the things of God so that we can become these scrupulous judges who are biblically arrogant people who understand everything and get involved in everybody's business is not our own. No, just mind your own business. And as we walk through life, understand that we do have to discern, we do have to call things by what they are. You know, I think as, as hard as it is, it's really healthy for us to fear becoming a Pharisee. Because then I think we'll become watchful, careful, and humble before the Lord. Say, oh God, search me. Know every single way in me. If there be any evil in me, please expose it. If I'm being deluded, if I'm arrogant, please. Oh Lord, humble me. Humble me. May I see that I have absolutely nothing. And may I be convinced of this. I have nothing that the Lord has not given me. 
I am not one ounce above any single other human being in this world. I'm not above them in any way. I, too, am a creature of God, made in his image. And if I have anything, it's by the grace of God. And I understand one thing. Apart from God, I can do nothing. Apart from him, I am a wretch. Apart from him, I'm the worst of all people. That conviction has got to get into our bones. And we've got to meditate on that and understand that. And live with a certain kind of humility, understanding that, you know what, if I have or if I understand or anything I have, it's not because there's any goodness or greatness in me. It's because God is kind and merciful and has for some crazy reason blessed me. We get that, we understand that, and we live there. That's That's the antidote to becoming a Pharisee. But start believing the press. Start believing and thinking that, you know what? I think I got something on these folks. And we're in trouble. We're going to become a Pharisee. We can't even confess sin much anymore because we can't think of much. And you know what we also have to remember? is that our passion has got to remain always for God and for his kingdom. We, our desire should be to serve and to bless and to give. And as long as our desire and our passion is focused on the extension of God's kingdom and the glory of his name, we know that we're in the right direction. But as long as we're seeking to gain more knowledge and wisdom so that I could be your teacher so that I can put you in your place, so that I can articulate for you with all clarity the doctrines of justification, there's a problem. May there never be an increase of walking, I'm sorry, an increase in talking and a decrease in walking, because then we're in trouble. We'll be saying a lot and doing a little. But let us focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom, and may that be our passion. And may we learn to grow in our knowledge and wisdom of the Lord so that we might trust him more, hope in him more, trust ourselves less, hope in ourselves less. Because then we can know that we're not drifting toward being a scribe or a Pharisee. Amen. Father, we're thankful for your word, and we're thankful whenever you humble us and wherever you correct us and whenever you admonish us, I'm so thankful that, Father, that when we're proud and we become arrogant and we puffed up and we think we're all this and that, that you come quickly and humble us. I'm grateful, Father, that you've not treated me according to my pride, but you've been gracious and loving and you've humbled me in it. I ask, Father, for all of us that we would be guard our hearts from becoming scribes and Pharisees, that we would pursue you, submit to you, and humble ourselves before you, knowing that it's all of grace. Amen.